The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 5, Greek Tragedy, Part 1. Let me start by describing a Facebook experience that I'm sure many of you will find familiar. What we might call a tragedy has happened to one of our friends or loved ones. The horrible post comes, breaking the horrible news. It reads like this. I'm sorry to let you all know that my father was killed in a car crash last Tuesday night. The funeral is tomorrow. He was a beautiful man, and we miss him terribly. And you, dear listener, what do you do? Your heart leaps into your throat. Your eyes burn with tears. And with a heavy heart, you reach for your computer mouse and hit the like button. Like? Like? What kind of monster likes that news? Now, Some might blame Facebook's lack of options for this result, but we do have an option. We could ignore the post. Why do we click like? Hold that thought. Instead, let me ask a different question. Why do we go to Shakespearean tragedies? King Lear, Hamlet, Othello, Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth. These are some of the most popular plays of all time. Nobody forces us to go. There's not a religion that compels our attendance. Oh, sure, I can hear you saying that you read these plays as students and you were forced to by your teacher. But adults choose to go. Thousands, maybe millions of people every year. We pay for the privilege of watching these. And think of the plots. Everyone dies, or at least the main characters meet with a horrible ending. It's vicious. It's like a bad joke. I heard that said about opera once. I went to the opera, two hours of singing, and everybody died. What's the big deal? It's the opposite of a Hollywood ending. Why do we go? And we do go, in large numbers. Millions of people watch the television show Breaking Bad, myself included. And the worse things got, the bigger the audience was. If you haven't watched the show, let me describe it for you. A high school chemistry teacher named Walter White learns that he has cancer. In order to pay for his treatment and provide for his family, he starts cooking batches of meth using equipment that he's stolen from his school laboratory. Gradually, he gets pulled deeper and deeper into the life of crime. Over the course of seven seasons, we watch him turn from a nondescript everyman into a canny, ruthless drug lord. And he does this long beyond the point where you could say it's being done because of the cancer. As the audience, we gradually come to admit that our hero has basically become evil, a bad guy, and we see him destroy everyone and everything around him. We know that he himself is headed for an awful, inevitable end. Why watch a show like that? And not just watch, I couldn't wait for the next episode. I've never had a serial viewing experience quite like it. Am I secretly evil? What's the answer? Why are these episodes themselves as addictive as crystal meth? We can take a look back 2,500 years to start to understand. Here's a question. 
Why did tragedy overwhelm Greek society? Greek theaters might have held 12,000 people, some say as many as 17,000. That's more than half the population of some cities. Everyone went to the tragedies. And a caveat there that by everyone we mean mostly men who were not slaves. Greek drama grew out of religious festivals, so the earliest origins are a little murky, just as the pagan religious experience is a little murky, a little wild, a little primitive. These festivals were held to celebrate Greek gods like Dionysus, a week of revelry to celebrate wine or the harvest. We know what celebrations like this are from our own experience, or we can guess. We have raves and orgies and frat parties and rock concerts. Think of a week-long harvest festival, or a crazy night at the bonfire, or a victory parade that turns into a riot. We know what it means to have a crowd of people in one place, cutting loose, fueled by alcohol, going collectively mad temporarily. And for the ancient Greeks, this celebration, this euphoria, this madness culminated in a trip to the amphitheater. A trip to sit in the open air, in the daylight watching some kind of spectacle. Again, this is easy to picture. It's clearly essential to humanity and pleasurable. And we'd all go tomorrow if we were 20 years old and they were holding such a spectacle nearby. What we probably wouldn't have is the tragedy portion. We'd go watch a football game or Beyonce or Bruno Mars or Adele, but not a tragedy. That's very Greek. The development, the arc from religious festival to drama to tragedy is fascinating. The festivals grow in size and importance and energy. Then a chorus is added. Then a single figure speaking monologues. Then that figure interacting with the chorus. The theaters they're speaking in are amazing, by the way. You've seen them in person or in pictures. These theaters built of long benches cut into the sloping hillside. The acoustics were incredible. Even today, if you go to an amphitheater that's well-preserved, you can sit in the top row as your friend stands on the stage. Ask him or her to snap his or her fingers or cough. You'll hear it perfectly well. Let's go back to our single figure, who's not quite an actor, just on the verge of being what we could call an actor. He's still interacting with the chorus. Then he comes out wearing a mask and assumes the part of a character perhaps a god, perhaps a historical figure. Now we can say he's an actor playing a part. And this is an invention. This is the first instance we see of this in Greek drama. If it's happened before, it has escaped history. It's incredible that we know generally when this development began, and just as incredible to think of what the world was like before it did, or what the world would be like had it never happened. Aeschylus, the genius we'll be looking at next week, added a second actor to the stage. Now we have two actors, each playing a character, and suddenly, conflict and drama can be acted out in front of the audience's eyes. Again, how incredible it is that this is being developed by a single person. Or at least it looks that way from what we understand. Thank you, Aeschylus. A drama. Think of what our world would be like without drama. All the theater... All the movies, gone. We'd have music and speeches, paintings and sculpture. We'd even have poetry and novels. 
but no dramatic activity. It's incredible to consider. Now, audiences in Greece knew a good thing when they saw it. Drama took off like wildfire. You can imagine what the feedback must have been like from those earliest plays. Two people pretending to be characters in opposition to one another? A drama? A conflict acted out before our eyes? Are you kidding? This is so much better than just being told a story by a narrator who's standing there describing everything to us in a monologue. More of this, please. We're actually very close to our answer of why we go to see tragedy, but let's keep holding that thought for now. Instead, let's jump ahead about a century to Aristotle, who can take over from here. Nobody who has ever lived has thought more deeply about tragedy than Aristotle. Unfortunately, that even includes your humble podcaster, me, Jack Wilson. What can I say? Aristotle has me beat in every way except one. He sucked at podcasting. So here I am, filling in, doing my best. Aristotle fascinates me. Plato and Aristotle stand for two poles of philosophy. They took two entirely different approaches to understanding the world, and each of them were so good that they continue to be unsurpassed in their respective methods. And here's one of the happy accidents of history. They knew each other. Quite well, in fact. Plato was Aristotle's teacher. Really, this chain of individuals is so remarkable, it's like the cosmos itself, which is so astonishing that it's easy to think that there must be a divine hand behind it all. Socrates, one of the most remarkable figures in all of history, has a student, Plato. Plato himself has a student, that's Aristotle. Does it stop there? No, because Aristotle himself has a student who just happens to have been Alexander the Great, perhaps the greatest military mind in the history of the world. If you were drafting historical figures in your historical figure fantasy league, these four would all be first-round picks, and they are in a direct line with one another. If there's another chain like that in history, if there's anything even close to it, let me know. What I love about Plato and Aristotle is how different they were. This wasn't the case of a pupil standing on the shoulders of his teacher. This was one genius recognizing the genius of another, but then going down a completely different path. I'll oversimplify their differences, but only a little, and put it this way. If you ask these two philosophers to discuss something, let's say an object like a chair, although it could also be a government system or an abstract concept like justice or love, if you ask them each separately to describe it, here's what they'd do. Plato would say we need to think of a chair, an ideal chair, and frame our discussion that way. We should envision the ideal chair and think about what we ask a chair to do. There's a perfect chair that exists in what Plato calls the world of forms, and today's chairs, the chairs we can see and touch, are just flawed imitations of it. Aristotle, on the other hand, would take a different approach. He would look at every chair he could, consider them all, weigh all the evidence of actual chairs that he'd seen in all their differences and variations. He'd find categories for them, find a description that fit them all. He, in other words, is not using inductive reasoning, as Plato is. He's using deductive reasoning, empirical evidence, not abstract thought. The great thing about the two is that they can wind up meeting in the same place. There's room for both approaches. Both ways are going to tell us a lot about chairs and get to some kind of truth. We'll have an answer for what is or isn't a chair, what a chair does, what makes a chair good or not as good. There may be different ways of getting there, but the results might be similar. 
And either way, the journey matters. There's the potential to learn something either way, just as there's the potential to get things wrong. Plato might never wind up being practical. Aristotle, on the other hand, might be limited by his own perceptions. That's all just to set up Aristotle so that you understand why we're using his definition of a tragedy and perhaps hinting at why he shouldn't be followed slavishly. We're lucky to have his thoughts on this. Aristotle, the greatest cataloger and describer in the history of the world, took a hard look at drama and tragedy. He gave us a definition and a discussion that's so good that we have him to thank for Shakespeare's tragedies. Shakespeare knew a good thing when he saw it, and Aristotle's poetics is a good A very, very good thing indeed. It's not a surprise that Aristotle took on tragedy. Here's a phenomenon that his beloved city of Athens couldn't get enough of. The citizens attended these plays, and curiously, they found them strangely elevating. They believed themselves to be better citizens for attending. You can imagine Aristotle asking, Why? What's going on here? It's too much for Aristotle, who's interested in art, but even more importantly, in types of government, and individual values and what it means to be a good citizen, it's too much for him to ignore. Something significant was going on here. Why do we care about Aristotle's views? First, as I mentioned, he's probably the greatest observer and describer ever. We ignore him at our peril. And second, he lived at it during a time when the people were immersed in tragedy as a part of their life experience. Aeschylus, the father of tragedies, one of the greatest author of tragedies ever, certainly in the top four or five, and the earliest, perhaps the most innovative, wrote 90 plays. We have seven. Of the hundreds of Greek tragedies that we know were written and performed, we have something like 25. But all of them were known to the ancient Greeks, including Aristotle. He'd have seen the ones that worked best, the ones that didn't work which was all grist for that great cataloging mill that Aristotle's mind was. And third, Aristotle had access to the spectacle itself and its impact on the citizenry. He lived among people who had been knowing tragedy, experiencing the theatrical experience of it for several generations. Think of it this way. If 2,000 years from now, someone wants to know how our society experiences the Super Bowl or the World Cup, Could he or she really understand it as well as someone can today? Someone who lives through it, who could talk to people who don't care at all, and people who are obsessed, and everyone in between, who can read a hundred different articles on the subject in real time, and who can attend the games themselves? It's doubtful. That's why we look to Aristotle. He was there, eyes wide open, brilliant mind churning. What did he see? First, he shared the general opinion of his day that tragedy is the highest form of drama. Indeed, it's the highest form of art itself. He wrote the poetics using tragedy as the example in his effort to understand how art is made, what art does for humans, why it works at the highest levels, and why inferior works fall short of that. Here's his definition of a tragedy. It's a little complicated, but don't worry, we'll break it down. A tragedy, says Aristotle, is an imitation of an action that is serious, complete in and of itself, and of a certain magnitude, written in appropriate and pleasurable language, taking the form of action, not of narrative, with incidents arousing pity and fear, wherewith to accomplish the catharsis of such emotions. 
Are you still with me? I'll repeat it one more time before we break it down. A tragedy is an imitation of an action that is serious, complete in and of itself, and of a certain magnitude, written in appropriate and pleasurable language, taking the form of action, not of narrative, with incidents arousing pity and fear, wherewith to accomplish its catharsis of such emotions. Aristotle also lists six elements of a tragedy, which is a very helpful list as well, and we'll consider those too. But let's unpack the definition first. The first clause is the imitation of an action that is serious, of a certain magnitude, and complete in and of itself. Here we have some ground rules. The topic of our tragedy must be serious. My girlfriend not texting me back doesn't rise to the sufficient level of seriousness. A certain magnitude means there are consequences. The stakes are high. There's an importance to it. Why are so many tragedies about death? Here's our answer. There's a gravitas to death. And the word gravitas itself tells us why. Gravity, heaviness, the grave. And finally, complete in and of itself. Too little of the narrative or too many wayward plots and the audience will lose its way. The spell will be broken. The effect will be confusion rather than the catharsis that we're headed for. We skipped over the first noun of the definition, imitation, but it's worth pausing and considering that as well. This is an imitation of reality. This is artistic. This is art. We aren't watching actual events. That's a rather obvious comment, but it's important. Our pleasure is an aesthetic one. Nobody suggests we'd feel the same way if these were actual people. Next up in our list of phrases, inappropriate and pleasurable language. Aristotle's considering the Greek chorus here as well as the lines themselves. The language should have rhythm and harmony. Again, what this mainly means is that there is beauty and not barbarousness. But beauty is not strictly necessary as long as barbarousness is avoided. Even beauty, if it's overly beautiful, might get in the way. Don't break the spell. Don't make the experience one of the audience fighting the language. I might suggest here that a bad translation of Greek might make us miss the point of a tragedy. And some might say that Elizabethan language of Shakespeare does the same, at least until our ears adjust. That's blasphemous, I know, but sometimes a little blasphemy is necessary. Think about it the next time you attend King Lear. Did you fall into the play entirely, or was part of you holding out, resisting the language? I'm not suggesting we change King Lear. I'm just suggesting that there may be better ways to understand the power that tragedy had on the minds of the Greek audience. Breaking Bad has it all. The language is right there and immediate. Our next phrase is easy, in a dramatic rather than narrative form. This distinguishes tragedy on the stage from, say, Homer. Homer is poetry. It's one person reading to you or talking to you. It's not the same as watching two people act it out. It might be better a better read than a play, but Aristotle's not talking about the text. The play's the thing. So we come to the next phrase. With incidents arousing pity and fear. Now we're getting to the heart of it. Pity and fear. Pity means we feel sorry, very sorry for the main character, the tragic hero. More on him in a moment. Or on him or her. For Aristotle, it was always a him, but for us, it can be either. Fear is the audience's fear for what is about to happen to the hero as he moves toward a destructive end. Fear for Othello or Hamlet, 
fear for Lear or Macbeth or Romeo and Juliet. We see them all. How about fear for Walter White? Yes. Man, this is turning into a podcast about Breaking Bad, but I don't care. It deserves the praise. And finally, to accomplish a catharsis of these emotions. Catharsis is so specific to Aristotle that we don't even try to translate it. We gave up long ago and just use his word. It's a purging or a cleansing of emotions, a release of the pity and fear. Usually, this is the moment of revelation when the tragic hero falls on his face or gets what's coming to him, and the audience can finally explode. Is this a sexual reference? Perhaps, but it doesn't have to be. Any pent-up frenzy will do. Let's take a quick break to collect our thoughts and then move on to the six elements of a tragedy as Aristotle describes them for us. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Let's get through the first four elements quickly. They're not as important as the final two. Number six is thought. Do the lines spoken make sense? Are they plausible? It's a low threshold to clear for a great playwright, but for the rest of us, it's a good reminder. Break the vivid, continuous dream with something unbelievable, and whatever frenzy you're building up will deflate. Number five is language or diction. Thought is what is being said. Language is how it's being said. Again, the key here is not to be elevated or flowery or anything like that. It's to keep your audience engaged. An awkward phrase, an inadvertent pun, clumsy language, cliches, vapid speeches. Save those for the comedies if you use them at all. Tragedy needs to be like a freight train headed down the track with nothing stopping it. Numbers four and number three are melody and spectacle. These are important to Aristotle, not so much to us. Well, unless maybe you're a filmmaker, in which case you'd want to pick the right background music to maintain your effect and the right cinematography. Again, there's no hard and fast rule about what you must include, as long as you don't include something that messes up the momentum of the tragedy. No goofy miscues to derail our freight train. And then we come to number two character. 
Every character, or at least every main character, must have an essential quality or nature that is revealed in the plot. The moral purpose must be clear to the audience. White hats and black hats, but that's not to say that morality is black and white. To the contrary. Our main character, our tragic hero, must be good in some way. Otherwise, the audience experience is messed up. We need to have some pity and fear. There's no pity if we don't have something good to root for, and there might not be fear either. Other things to remember about character fall into the category of don't break the spell. The characters should behave appropriately for who they are in life. Aristotle calls this gender and station, and we don't have hard and fast rules about gender or station like he did, but we do have certain boundaries. We don't expect someone in 2015 to be jumping over buildings or speaking in Latin, unless there's some good explanation for it. Their personalities, though, must be believable. Don't make them too flighty or malleable or dumb. Someone in love must act like someone in love, not like the lifetime version of someone in love. And finally, characters should act consistently throughout the play. A generally nice person won't suddenly turn evil without some explanation. This all seems obvious enough until you actually try to write a play. You need a hero to face a challenge. Maybe someone needs to stab your hero. Maybe that's the challenge you have in mind. Maybe that's what comes next in the plot. And then you think, hey, there's this nurse who's been hanging around in a bunch of scenes, and she's just been kind of inert, doing nice things and fluffing pillows for everyone. So maybe I could just have her pull out a knife all of a sudden and wham, she goes temporarily insane and stabs the hero. That kind of thing happens, right? No, not in your tragedy. You need to set that up long before if you're going to do that. That needs to be on your train when it's leaving the station. And as we'll see, it can't just be a random act. It must be connected to the plot. So now let's turn to the plot. Aristotle believed that the plot or story or action was the most important of the six elements. Here's his quote. All human happiness or misery takes the form of action. Character gives us qualities, but it is in our actions, what we do, that we are happy or miserable. You might say that outside forces, like winning the lottery, could also make us happy. That may be so, but not in a good tragedy. In a good tragedy, it's the actions of the character that will produce the best result. Otherwise, what happens to the character will feel cheap and unearned. What do you think about if you see a character deciding to kill his wife out of jealousy? You think about the character. What's going on in the character's mind? What's driven the character to do what he's doing? What do you think about if the character wins the lottery? The nature of lotteries? Or maybe the author's decision to suddenly grant the character a windfall? Stick to action and keep that action rooted in character. Plot is really the heart of Aristotle's analysis. We've saved the best for the end. Here's where you can see Shakespeare sitting down with his quill, absorbing everything he reads with that beautiful mind of his. I said Aristotle had one great pupil, Alexander the Great. Let's also call him the best teacher that Shakespeare ever had. You need to know four things to understand what Aristotle taught Shakespeare about plot. First, Aristotle emphasized that there must be a unity of plot. This is the one complete action in and of itself that we saw in the definition. Events or episodes in our play must be necessary, probable, believable. They must keep the momentum going. They must follow one another in a chain of cause and effect. 
Remember, too much complication and the audience will lose focus. Watch Macbeth sometime, and you'll see what Shakespeare learned from Aristotle. That play is a runaway train if there ever was one. Second, a good plot must involve change or discovery, or both. Change here is of a particular kind. The change from one state of things at the beginning of the play to the opposite state of things by the end of the play. The rich man becomes poor. The king loses his crown. The ruler goes to jail. The main character goes from a state of happiness to a state of misery. Instead of that kind of change, or in addition to it, you could also have discovery, the change from ignorance to knowledge. Oedipus the king is our leading example of this kind of change. The tragic hero starts out clueless, and so slowly learns how he himself created the mess, until his knowledge is too much for him to bear. The third thing to know is that change itself is not enough. The change that occurs has to come from the character. It has to be rooted in the character's personality. Because otherwise, as Aristotle points out, it wouldn't arouse the pity and fear that we're seeking to achieve through tragedy. You can see this in Aristotle's examples of the types of plot that don't work as well. His first example is a totally good man passing from happiness to misery. Aristotle observes that that type of plot doesn't work because the audience will just be angry at what happens. There won't be pity. There will be outrage on behalf of the hero. Second, a bad man can't go from misery to happiness. Where's the pity in that? The audience will hate the fact that the bad man has won. And third, a bad man can't go from happiness to misery. The audience will think he got what he deserved. There's no pity and there's no fear. So there we go. Character and plot are combined. The true tragic hero can't be all good or all bad. He must be mostly good with a flaw. And he must change from happiness to misery because of that flaw. Now, if we're setting this up, what's the easiest thing to look for? How do you find a flaw for your hero? Here's what Aristotle recommends. You find a good quality, like pride or courage, that gets out of hand. The fourth thing to know about plot is that there must be a horrible or evil deed. Why would a tragic hero commit such a thing? Because we're trying to horrify the audience. This is the tragedy. It's not a tragedy if a bad man does a bad thing and gets punished for it. The tragedy is that a good person does such a thing and winds up getting a kind of justice as a result. That's horrible. That's what we call a tragedy. Now, the character doesn't necessarily have to do the deed, although he certainly can. He could also uh, do something out of ignorance or make it easy for the deed to happen. In some way, though, he has to be responsible for it. Aristotle also likes raising the stakes. He recommends not having the horrible deed happen to the hero's enemy, because where's the tragedy in that? Or he recommends not having the horrible deed happen to a someone who's a stranger to the hero, because in that case, there won't be enough at stake. Instead, Aristotle thinks it should be a horrible fate befalling someone the hero knows, preferably a family member, to, in order to have maximum impact on the audience. So there we are. Let's take one more quick break. When we come back, we'll see if we can put Aristotle's ideas into action today. His advice is 2,500 years old. Is it outdated? Or can we use it to put together a believable plot using only his description of what makes a good tragedy and his six elements for doing so? Let's find out.
Okay, so here we go. Let's start by coming up with a hero, our tragic hero. Now, Aristotle recommends that we use a leader of some kind. And of course, he would say that the leader must be a male. But we can ignore that as a limitation of Aristotle's world. How about a female? How about a female CEO? That would be powerful enough to have a fall from grace. Remember, we need to end up in the opposite place from where we begin. And of course, we have a benefit by making our hero female, which is that it might give us an interesting twist on the audience's sympathy for her. Look, we've had male kings for 2,500 years at the heart of our tragedies. A female CEO might better reflect our era and strike our audience as more fresh. We can depart from Aristotle where it makes sense to do so. As with any art, the important thing is that we understand what rules we're bending or breaking and why we're doing so, so that if things go wrong, we know how to fix them. So, we have a female hero who's the head of a giant multinational corporation. Let's dispense with the first four elements, fiction, spectacle, melody, and thought. We'll just assume that we get those right. Let's go straight to the most important two, character and plot. And in particular, the way that character and plot need to work together. We know that our character needs to be mostly good. A ruthless CEO won't give us the tragedy we need because the audience will be rooting for her to fail. So we need to have her be positive, someone we want to succeed, even though CEOs are often wealthy, often somewhat hard for most of us to identify with. Some people might be naturally predisposed to hate our hero based on their views of the wealthy in general or maybe their own boss. So let's make her a good CEO, someone who cares about the environment, cares about workers. Maybe she's turned around a car company and brought jobs back to America. There are ways to make her sympathetic. One of the easiest ways to set up a character is to show how much others like her. So maybe we could start with a worker who comes in or maybe two workers, two union officials. They could be talking and they could acknowledge that she's been the best and the fairest CEO that the company has ever had. Is this good for a hero? Sure. We can ratchet this up if we need to. Maybe she started out poor and put herself through college. Maybe she herself started out as a factory worker and worked her way up. Maybe every other CEO that the company has had has been a short-sighted MBA type who just grabbed the money and left. But she, our hero, cares about the company, its purpose, its workers, because she was one of them. Wouldn't you root for her to succeed? We could also set a greedy board of directors in place, maybe have a rival executive who's trying to tear her down. We could throw in some misogyny and some class resentment. We can make her very sympathetic, but let's not go overboard. We'll need to calibrate this carefully. We want to go far enough to make her sympathetic, but not so far that she's unbelievable or implausible. And of course, we have to give her a flaw. Aristotle, as we saw, recommended we use a good quality that just gets pushed too far. How about ambition? Maybe in her rise to the top, she's stepped on people. Maybe her belief in doing good, maybe it's the desire to do good that has made her commit some bad acts. Maybe she herself was the head of the union and some bad things happened as she worked her way up. How bad did things get and how involved was she? Did she have someone fired? Is that the horrible deed we're looking for? But is that really dramatic enough? People are fired all the time. It might be hard to get the audience to care about that. Maybe one of her rivals was killed. 
that has possibilities. But again, we must be careful not to strain plausibility. Did she kill the rival herself? Actually commit a murder? That might be a bit much for the audience to believe. Remember, her flaw is in passionate anger, but ambition. She's not a cop or a soldier or someone who might be expected to carry weapons around. How about this? Maybe she created an atmosphere where this kind of thing could happen. Maybe there was a real fight between the old guard and the new, and she was surrounded by people, advisors or supporters, who were willing to win by any means necessary. Maybe she turned a blind eye or encouraged them. I'm tempted to switch things up now because advisors are so interesting and because the stakes are so high when there's actual power involved, the levers of power that comes with government. What if we scrap the CEO idea and make our hero a politician? Maybe, let's say, she's a governor. She could be the first female governor that her state has ever had. Maybe she's surrounded by advisors who play dirty because politics is a dirty game and we all expect a certain amount of poor behavior. Not murder, necessarily, but it's also a world where murder is not totally unbelievable either. A lot of amoral types live in politics. There's a lot of dirty deeds that are washed clean by the election, by winning the popular support and seizing and controlling power. Controlling power also gives you the mechanism by which to erase those dirty deeds, to control the police, the judicial system. At least a lot of people believe that. It's easy to believe when something happens, when an aide goes missing or a rival candidate. It's easy to point the finger at a politician and the politician's advisors. I think we're in the realm of plausibility here. So that's our character, a rags to riches governor who has made it in a man's world, who herself has high-minded ideas for what she wants to do, who's unselfish and popular and talented and capable of doing great things for her citizens but who has let her ambition and belief in her own sense of destiny cloud her judgment in terms of the people she's associated with. All of that follows Aristotle, more or less, and I think that works. I think we can make the audience care about what happens to our hero and hope that she succeeds, and at the same time feel sorry for her. Remember, this is the pity that we're looking for. We can believe that she's trusted her advisors, and we can be afraid for where it will lead her. We don't know yet where it will lead her. We haven't talked about that. We do know that whatever happens to her will come from her own ambition. So we're not too angry about what happens. We see that it was her fault. We sense that it came from her good quality that we've exaggerated. So let's look at the plot. As an initial matter, we need unity. We can have a few stray subplots, maybe some aids, their background story. But even those should be connected to our central theme. And we need a change or discovery. I think we have this covered already. The change. We see the rise. Maybe she wins the election or the re-election. We could have her start in the governor's mansion. And then we'll see the downfall. That will be the change we're looking for. But how do we get from A to B? What about our A, the deed, trusting her advisors, will lead to the downfall? Remember, there are three plots we can't use. She can't be all good. She can't be bad and get rewarded for that. And she can't be bad and get punished. And we know that she has to end up in misery. So let's talk about what that misery could be. What happens to politicians? They lose an election. That's not very dramatic. That happens all the time. 
Is that a tragedy? I don't think the stakes are high enough there. Maybe she gets arrested and taken to jail. That's a little better. How about if she's assassinated? Maybe. Or murdered by someone she knows? That's also possible. I feel like those might get a little out of our control. An assassination, uh, the play would probably be more about the assassin or the murder by someone she knows, same thing. Be more about the murderer and why he or she did what he or she did. In that case, we might run into the risk of our character's deed not leading directly to the action. It would feel a little forced. It would feel a little external. But those might work. Uh, how about if we have her commit suicide? That's possible as well. The event would need to be pretty powerful to trigger that. Maybe extreme shame or disgrace. I've been circling around the one that I like the best. Have her be destroyed by the mob, by her own people. What happens to set a population against their leader? What would lead them to storm the governor's mansion? Maybe they light a fire. They bring fires. They bring torches. The fire gets out of control. Why would they do that? Why would they storm the mansion? Maybe because she's barricaded inside. Maybe she's refusing to leave even though the public is outraged. Why? What would cause that? What would cause such outrage? Maybe a rigged election? Or the belief that they have a monster installed as governor? A monster who believes herself to be above the law? Above justice? We're getting close now. I still don't think we've explained, though, why they would think she's a monster. What would cause them to think such a thing? Maybe that she's a murderer. Maybe there's been a murder. Maybe it's her husband. That would fit with Aristotle. Uh, the horrible deed would need to be acted uh, upon a family member. We could use a son or a daughter. Maybe a lover. I like the husband. I like that idea. Maybe the husband was himself beloved by the people. Maybe he was a threat to her. Maybe he questioned some of her tactics. Maybe he alienated her advisors. Maybe those advisors gave her some bad advice. Filled her head with things she wanted to hear because of her ambition, but were not actual. Maybe the public has figured out the truth. Maybe everyone knows the truth but her. She's the last one to learn it. Maybe that's the discovery we need. Remember, change in Aristotle's scheme, change can be discovery as well as uh, a change in events. You can pass from knowledge to, or sorry, from ignorance to knowledge. And now she's refusing to be arrested, refusing to go gently into that good night. And the very public that she's counted on to support the one she wants to serve is the one that rises up against her and leads to her tragic downfall. We've kind of been working in reverse order, so let's straighten out the plot and see where we are. A woman rises through the ranks to become a popular leader, her state's first female governor, who wants to help people. She's gotten where she is because of her strength of character. She's ambitious, she's strong, she's confident. Those same qualities work against her when used in abundance. She never shrinks from a political fight, and she's surrounded by advisors who aren't above brass-knuckle politics, which she accepts as part of the larger need to fulfill her destiny as a leader and agent of change. She entrusts and empowers one of these advisors too much, 
which comes to a head when her husband, himself a popular political figure who has been critical of her election tactics, is found dead in suspicious circumstances. After the election, the truth becomes made known. She has allowed the murder of her husband to go forward. A warrant goes out for her arrest. Her advisor persuades her that this is a trumped-up charge. She attempts to seize power and remain in office. Even as she thinks she's being victimized by the police and refuses to accept arrest, the people are outraged and storm the governor's mansion. Finally, she realizes the truth, that she herself was complicit in the murder of her husband, just as the fires start shining through the windows of the mansion. How will this make the audience feel? If we do our job well, they'll think the chain of events are believable, plausible, and lead to an inevitable result. Every step in the chain will be logical and rational. And by the end, when our hero finally accepts the truth that her own ambition led her to trust someone she shouldn't have, and that this directly led to her own husband's horrible murder, the audience will feel a gushing sense of relief. The journey will have built up something horrible, but the end will be cathartic, a purging. How good is it? How good is our plot that we've just come up with together? Well, let's work on it. I think it's good enough to show us something, though. Aristotle's ideas aren't just limited to Athens in the 5th century BC. They can be used today with whatever modifications suit the artist to build a tragedy. Or you can just watch Breaking Bad. That show checks off every box on our list as well. If you're like me, you'll experience the show the way I did. And as the series came to its conclusion, I found myself standing up to watch because I literally could not sit down. The form still works. It worked for the Greeks. It worked for Shakespeare. It works for us. Even our own little story, sketched out quickly and on the fly, is pretty good for a start. If we're building a novel or a screenplay, we could do a lot worse than start with that story. And it would have taken me days or weeks of trial and error if I hadn't had Aristotle's guide to help show me the way. He was a very smart man who probably saw plenty of flawed tragedies as well as the successful ones. In art, as in so many other things, we learn a lot from failure. There's our music. That means we're coming to the end of this episode of the History of Literature. Next time, we're going to take a look at what Nietzsche had to say about tragedy. And we'll take a closer look at the great Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, the three great authors of the tragedies who inspired Aristotle. How well did their plays fit Aristotle's definition? What was their importance for the history of literature? And how well do those plays hold up today? Finally, we ask you to hold our Facebook story in reserve. We'll finish up with that next time as well. That's next Monday. On Thursday... We'll have more of a comedy-slash-tragedy on the Restless Mind show. That one will fall more in, with the, more in line with the Mel Brooks definition of tragedy. Tragedy, Mel Brooks said, is when I prick my finger. Comedy is when you fall into a sewer and die. That's the spirit. <laughs> Actually, that says a lot more about comedy than tragedy. It gets tragedy all wrong, as I hope we've shown today. That's the Restless Mind show right here on this feed because that little podcast is not yet pushed out of its nest. Hey, speaking of which, you can subscribe to the History of Literature on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It's just a button. Go ahead and click it. My phone comes with an app that says Podcasts. I use that, and it works great. 
Just search for History of Literature, look for the dark blue square with the coffee cup logo, and hit subscribe. Or, to take a little more effort, if you're enjoying the show, please rate us or leave a review. If you'd like to talk back in some other way, a word of praise, a note of disapproval, a comment, or a question, you can visit us at jackwilson.com, that's J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, or historyofliterature.com. Are we on Facebook? Yes, we are. We're just getting started there. Come over there and like us as well. That's facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Oh, you can send us an email, leave us a comment. We'd love to hear from you. And that is it for this episode of the History of Literature. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you enjoyed the program and see you next time.